This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Keller. You know that road, the one you've never ridden on that splits off from your normal paved routes? Well, maybe it's time to give it and some other gravel roads a shot. If nothing else, it just might be a good excuse to see some new scenery. The popularity of gravel events and gravel races is on the rise. The industry is undoubtedly pushing the sport into more and more diverse areas, and it's not a bad thing. There is more than ample room in this sport for all types of participants. Just like other areas of life, some people jump right into a new challenge, and others are a little bit more cautious. They ask questions and they want to deliberate on a decision. Today's show is for the latter. For those of us in the road racing community who are gravel curious, but who want to learn from the experts and from those who went before us about the challenges and obstacles that they initially faced when trying something new. For those riders, we present Gravel, an intro for road racers. We tell this story in two parts and with two incredible guests who know their respective ways around the sport. The first is Amanda Nauman, two-time champion of Dirty Kansas, the premier gravel event in the United States. She walks us through the who, what, where, and when of our questions. Then we talk with Adam Mills, head coach of Source Endurance and the promoter of the Belgian Waffle Ride Survival Camp, a three-day how-to event in January in San Diego that helps you learn how to ride on gravel and prepares you to take on the Belgian Waffle Ride. He helps answer the how question. As far as why, that's still up to you. Hey Rob, um, I'm Amanda Nauman. I have been riding racing bikes since I was in college, so almost a decade now. That's crazy to say and admit. <laughs> but yeah, I started as a swimmer. Um, I started riding bikes and racing, doing triathlons. That was how I got into racing bikes and started doing cyclocross once I got my first job, which was at a bike company. And I just had the competitive bug in me to keep racing. And so I've done many different disciplines since I started and I really enjoy it. But I think the root of it all is that I'm, like I said, competitive and I, I like a good bike race. You're also the host of a really well-received and renowned podcast called The Grodio. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> what is The Grodio? It is a show on the Wide Angle Podium Network uh, started by Bill Shiken and Zach Schuster and a few episodes in, they kind of teased uh, having me on to do an episode commentating on Dirty Kansas and stuff. And then they, I basically just never left. <laughs> I don't even think they tried to kick me off. And yeah, it's a, mostly a show about the, I would say, the pointy end of gravel racing. You know, there's a lot of other shows out there about every guy, the every person rider, the promoters, the events in general. Grodio, I think more is about the racing. And it's kind of a fun conversation to talk about the pointy end, you know, some fun rankings like Bill does for cyclocross and just have a conversation about the the stars at the front and how those events play out. Do you consider yourself to be one of those stars at the front of the gravel scene nowadays? <laughs> um, I, yes, I laugh at it because it's a weird thing to say, but yeah, I, I think uh, I've gotten some good results and I'd like to think I'm still in the mix, but, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure that's up for discussion. You're a former Dirty Kanza winner? Or two-time, yeah. Two-time winner. That's nothing to, you know, shake your head about. <laughs> in fact, this year you finished on the podium at Mid-South. I'd personally consider you so, you to be very much at the top of the sport still. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> do you consider yourself to be a gravel racer or a cross racer? Or how do you identify in our world? I would identify as a cyclocross racer first. And it's hard to even say that because I feel like a lot of people would consider me a gravel racer first just because my results have been better there. But really, I, I love cross. I've always loved it. That's been my first love. And the reason why I started doing gravel was just because I needed some long stuff to do training for cyclocross season. So I would say that's primarily what I would consider myself. Although in the next few years, who knows what's going to happen with the way the, the bike industry wants to see things go. 
How did you find your way to the sport? Because both of us share the swimming part in common. Yes. Both of us kind of went through life swimming and staring at a black line forever yeah. and ever and ever. And then we decided one day that black wasn't the color we wanted. We wanted to follow the yellow line down the middle of the road instead. How did you find that yellow line? Yeah, so both of us are swimmers. I think that's a really cool thing. If anybody's listening to this show, uh, we were joking about it earlier, but swimmers share this common bond of knowing all the suffering that we went through for very many years. And yeah, so I think it takes a, a certain type of personality to be a swimmer, especially one that goes through college with it. I know a lot of um, people after high school, they'll get into college swimming and it's just way too much of a commitment when you're that age and there's other distractions and stuff. So especially people who, you know, go through four years of swimming, I think it's something special. First two years of swimming in college, I did start to get burnt out and I kind of hated following that black line. And I was a distance swimmer and we had the worst practices and so my boyfriend at the time was racing triathlons and he was like, you should get a bike, you know, just try something different and, and try this triathlon thing. And sure enough, I did. My dad was riding bikes, so it was really easy for him to to convince him to to get me a bike and, you know, we could do it together. And it was like a fun bonding thing. And then I would do some of the collegiate racing at Stevens and that pretty much saved my swimming career, I would say, for those last two years in college because I actually wanted to swim because I was balancing it out with all the running and the biking. It gave me this other motivation to actually want to get in the pool uh, when it came time. So yeah, that was basically how it happened. And when I was in my finishing my master's degree at Stevens, I decided that I loved bikes so much I wanted to work in the industry. And I sent a resume in to Felt Bicycles, which is in Irvine, California, really close to home for me. And some the right person got my resume and I went for an interview and I started as an internship there. And really my job at Felt was how I got into all the other bike racing. If I hadn't gotten that job, I'd probably still be doing triathlons right now. But I had a lot of coworkers who were there that said, hey, you'd be really good at bike racing. You should try it. And that's how I, I stumbled into it, basically. <laughs> Let's switch over to gravel versus cross, away from okay. swimming. As cool as swimming is, I'd love to talk about it for the I rest know. of time. <laughs> 20 years of it wasn't enough for me. Um, yeah. You know, there's a wide gulf in between a 45-minute or hour-long cross race and a 200-mile gravel event. Mm -hmm. How did you bridge that gap from, you know, when I first heard about you, it was probably six years ago when you got top 10 at Nationals and Cross. That was before I knew anything about gravel. That was before I'd ever seen you in any gravel results. How did you make that jump from those short events to these longer events? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I get a lot of people ask me that, how I balance both, why it ever happened that I was splitting those two things. But it actually goes back to swimming. And I think the I always had this big endurance base because of swimming. It's not like I just stumbled into this, you know, eight-hour racing style and was good at it. Like I was used to swimming 20-plus hours a week. I don't even ride my bike that much <laughs> nowadays, which is crazy. So... Yeah, I just have this incredible base of fitness from when I was really young. And so I started racing cross. I was really enjoying it because it was a tough challenge as somebody who doesn't have a lot of fast twitch muscle. And that's part one of the reasons why I really enjoy it is because I don't consider myself very good at it. Uh, it's a, It takes a lot of work for me to have that high-end explosive power. And at the time, it was probably like 2013-14 was when Belgian Waffle Ride was doing the first couple years of their event, which is only an hour drive south from where I live right now. And it was that event. It was an event called Rock Cobbler, which is also a couple hours uh, north of me in Bakersfield. Essentially, these types of events started coming up around the time of the year that I needed to start doing these long rides for cyclocross. And that was basically how it all happened. It was like, well, you know, I should be riding five, six hours this weekend anyways. 
I'm just going to sign up for this event. It's good motivation. And I'm going to go have this fun adventure as well. So it, it complemented each other at that time in my life. And, you know, as I found success in gravel racing, obviously some of that training stuff changed and, you know, I'm focusing on actually doing well at those events too. So yeah, it's been an evolution, but that was the basically the birth of it. Speaking of evolution, how did this sport come to be? Because when I started racing in 2002, it really wasn't a thing. I had never heard of a gravel event. A, a gravel was just a thing that in Kansas you had to ride to get between paved roads. And you would get these eventual Roubaix events that would get tossed into the calendar. So like Rouge Roubaix, which is down in Baton Rouge, or Perry Roubaix, not the one in in, in in Europe, but the one in actually Kansas around Lake Perry, or Hillsboro Roubaix, you know, all these races that have these gravel sectors. But when did gravel events come around? I think that, you know, Dirty Kansas has been around for a long time. Paris to Ancaster has been around for almost two decades or something crazy. There's always been these like long format cyclocross races like Paris to Ancaster, but then there have always been these like Midwest style gravel events as well. But I do think it's something that has probably evolved over the past 20 years and Dirty Kansas in the past 10 years and that style of racing. But I, I really think the evolution of it was just a bunch of people wanted to go have this crazy adventure and it's somewhere in between that like ultra, you know, ride across America stuff versus, you know, an hour long cross race. It's somewhere in the middle. And I know when I did Rock Cobbler for the first year, uh, Sam Ames, who's the promoter of that event, came up to us um, at a cross race and he was like, hey, I'm going to do this crazy thing in February. It's basically going to be like a really long cyclocross race. And that's how he explained it. And that's how he wanted the event to be. And so that, you know, piqued our interest. And, and it's funny, you go back to some of the media stuff that was written at the time about that event. And the word gravel is never used. It's not even a way to describe that event at that time, because that discipline hadn't evolved in that way yet to where people wanted to like give it a name tag and call it something. It was pretty much people just wanting to go have this crazy adventure and tell stories about it and go see what could happen after five or six hours of riding. So I think as these events started coming into the picture over the past eight years, everybody needs to put some sort of label on it and categorize it. And that's how gravel came to be. In the beginning, I hated that word for events like Belgian Waffle Ride and Rock Cobbler and and some of these other, especially in California, events that are nothing compared to like Midwest style Kansas gravel, Nebraska, and you know middle middle America parts of the country. They're completely different. But at the same time, what connects them all together is the challenge and the adventure and going doing something that's way outside of your comfort zone. Is there a definition of a gravel race because you know it appears that BWR is a mixed surface type race. You go to Kansas, it is 95% gravel. I think it's like the first block is paved and then the rest of it's gravel sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, is there a definition for when we actually get to a legit gravel race or is it whatever you want it to be? I honestly think it's whatever you want it to be off-road with skinnier tires, essentially. is If you're not, you can still do these events on a mountain bike. I don't even want to say it has to be on a gravel or a cross bike because it's whatever you want it to be, essentially. And it's longer than a cross race and somewhere in between 48 hours. <laughs> Let's put it there. Some, something like that. <laughs> How has the scene changed over, say, the like last five years? Because in in reading, you know, any cycling magazine, it's impossible now to not read about a gravel event. Whereas you go back to when we all started, you'd never see that word tossed around. So how has it changed in the last couple of years? I think the, the biggest thing that's changed over the past five years is the bike industry latching onto it, essentially. And that's a good thing. I mean, it's great for the industry. It keeps people buying bikes, different kinds of bikes. It keeps the money rolling. I completely get it. But I think that, yeah, besides the bike industry wanting to put a label on it and be able to sell bikes and equipment and something in this category to keep money going, 
and more people going to these events. Not much has changed really beyond that besides the popularity. I mean, it's not like the style of events has changed or the racing has changed. That's pretty much still all the same. I think the interest level has definitely shifted and it's harder to get into some of these events. But when you're actually there at the events in the atmosphere and everything like that, it hasn't changed that much. But um, it's been fun to see the breadth of equipment that's available to people make it a lot easier for noobs, I would say, (laughs) to come into it and have gear that's going to make it comfortable. And I think that was a a limiting factor in the beginning was people didn't really know what to do with the equipment, what exactly, you know, tires were going to work, bike, what what all that was. And now, you know, there's full prepackaged things from bike companies now where you could get on that bike and do an event and it'd be totally okay. So talk to us about that scene, that festival-type environment or whatever it happens to be at these events. Because these are, in some cases, massive events. Like Kanza has an expo with it. BWR has events leading up to it. You know, is this like the downtown Criterium with the festival and the rock band playing? Or is it more like the the mountain bike race in a park sort of thing? That's a great question. I think it's still hard to answer because there are so many different types of gravel events that I've been to. And there are smaller grassroots ones where there's barely an expo at all. And then there's the bigger events where the expo is as big as what feels like sea otter. (laughs) So, you know, there's a whole range in between right now. And I think that that's part of what makes it fun is that you can still find those really small events that have 100, 200 people. There's not 200 sponsors trying to shove all this stuff down your throat about things that you should buy. And you can still go have a good time and spend like 50 bucks instead of like 350 to go do something. So I think that is part of the beauty of the discipline right now is that it still has this completely huge range of events that you can choose from. But yeah, it's hard to compare it mostly because I haven't been to a huge like crit (laughs) weekend. So I don't know what that looks like. And then on the flip side, mountain biking is still kind of, you know, so-so. It's not like it's had a huge expo thing either in a long time. So I think you'll probably find some of the biggest event expo areas at the big gravel events, I would say, right now. What's it going to take to get you to come race a crit with me? (laughs) I would do it. I Honestly, I mean, it sounds fun. I did, I don't know, like a couple of beginner races when I was in college. There's a local upgrade kind of crit in Redlands that's in that's here that they do during the summer that I've done and it's only like at the most 15 guys that show up for it so that's been the extent of my crit racing in the past few years I enjoy it it's fun and it's really good uh cyclocross practice I'm just so afraid of hurting myself honestly You've never obviously watched me race cross because I can hurt myself very <laughs> easily there. Uh, <laughs> while we're talking <laughs> while we're talking about the different disciplines, right or wrong, sometimes in our sport there is this sense of factionalism, the roadie versus the cross racer, mountain bike versus everyone. Do you feel the factionalism in your role somewhere in between cross and gravel? Do I feel it personally or do I feel like people put me into those different categories? Do you feel it personally? Let's start there. I do. And I feel like sometimes in the beginning, especially there was like a little bit of imposter syndrome being at the gravel events because people was just like, oh, it's the cyclocross racer that's trying to do this gravel stuff. And people were putting those labels on me, even though I didn't want them necessarily at the time. So yeah, I think there's definitely still a little bit of that. There's not too many people who are doing that crossover, I think, and they're still, you know, mountain bikers or mountain bikers and cross racers or cross racers. But with people like Marianne Voss and Matthew Vanderpool, they're all blurring the lines now anyway. So I think there's there's less of a label problem these days. <laughs> well, I mean, is gravel an open environment? Can somebody who is a you know, a road racer, or can somebody who does mountain bike come in and have fun doing gravel? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, Payson McElvin's probably a really good example of that, because he would identify himself as a mountain bike racer first, and can show up and, you know, win Mid-South two years in a row. So, 
yeah, I think it's still welcomed. I don't think that people are frowning upon the other disciplines coming in and racing or else I probably wouldn't have very many friends in in that community. So yeah, it's still a very welcoming group. And I think that that's part of the reason why everybody loves it. Once they do a few events is nobody's judging them. It's still, you know, everybody's coming in saying, hey, come join the party. For those of us on the outside looking in, there is this perception that gravel events are these experiential type events. They're adventure events. They might not necessarily be about who gets to the finish line first, more about having that epic day. For some of us, that who finishes first part of the sport is important. It is somewhat of an identifying factor for why we race. Not saying that either is right or wrong or anything like that, but is there a place in gravel for people who want to be in into it for the experience? And is there a place for the people who want to finish first? Oh, absolutely. And that's, again, I think part of why I enjoy the discipline so much is because it's up to you what you want it to be. For example, in the past five years, for sure, I admit I was 100% focused on winning Dirty Kansas. That was what I wanted to do. The first year that I showed up, I went in with uh, my boyfriend, David Sheik, telling me, you know, the year before, he said, I think you could win Dirty Kanza. And he put this bug in my mind of like, you know, in the following year in 2015, he thought I had the potential to win it because he had done it in 2014. And so every event since that time was like, okay, I can probably win Dirty Kanza and I want to. And that was the goal. And, you know, fast forward five years, I finished five of them. And I'm at this place now with that event where I want to go back to that feeling I had in 2015 of, I wonder if I can even finish this (laughs) because that was when it was more enjoyable to me, to be honest, there was less pressure of trying to win it or whatever. And so that was part of the reason why this year I signed up to do the DKXL because sure, do I want to win it? It'd be nice, but I'm really more curious about what the heck is going to happen to my body for 24 hours and no sleeping. And that goes, like I said, back to the whole reason why I was ever doing this stuff to begin with, because I wanted a challenge and it was something that scared me. And that is what appeals to me more than trying to, you know, get on the start line and win the thing. It's something more personal for me. And I, and that's, I think, honestly, why a lot of people do these events to begin with. It's a personal challenge, whatever that may be. For some, it's, you know, finishing an event before the sun goes down. For some, it's trying to win their age group, which might not necessarily be first overall, but it's important to them. And, you know, I I know one guy who says every time he does Dirty Kanza, he sees he has like these visions of talking to his dad who has since passed away. And it's like really important for him to go do this event because he gets to this like place where, it's like an experience for him and something happens out there. And and I love the stories like that because you find out that these epic adventures that people go into like self-discovery mode (laughs) and that's part of the appeal for, for a lot of them. What's it like for you racing your bike for 10 plus hours for, for, for DK for the 200 mile event How does your body voyage through that experience? It begins very fast, especially because I'm a woman. You know, the pointy end of our race is mixed in with the very fast men. And in the beginning for us, it's basically hanging on for dear life and hoping that you get into the fastest possible groups in the beginning. Whether or not you're a woman or a man, if you're trying to do well, that's basically the goal in the beginning of these events. They start out very fast. It's like an hour-long cross race to begin with. And then you find yourself in a group. You kind of dwindle down to a a handful of people, which, funny enough, will probably end up being the handful of people you are still circling around for the next, like, eight hours. (laughs) And then you get to different checkpoints for Dirty Kansas specifically, You get to the halfway and 100 miles feels like it flies by and then the next 50 miles feels like the worst 50 miles of your life and then the final 50 miles feels like, okay, you're just watching the miles tick by on your computer and trying to get to the finish line. (laughs) Were you prepared for XL? 
Yes, until a month ago, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's just been postponed. It's not yeah. canceled. You know, you you're still going to have to to go to that place, but that's what 350 miles or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and to be honest, I don't actually know if I'm going to be able to do it this year with that postponement date. Part of it's cross. Part of it is I was going to put on a gravel race um, in Mammoth in September, which is supposed to be the weekend right after. So there's a lot of stuff that happened in the past couple weeks. But essentially, I'm going to do it someday, whether or not it's this year or not. But yeah, I was prepared to do it. Maybe not mentally prepared, but at least I was uh, (laughs) up for the challenge. (laughs) I mean, that's a long time to be in your own head. I mean, I'll go out for a four, five, six hour ride. And there's a lot of really weird, random thoughts that go through my mind, especially as I start to run low on food. You know, what did you think would be that experience for you this year or whenever you do do it? Uh, My biggest fear is sleep deprivation because a lot of, you know, ultra bike packing events, you know, that style of long, long format, you can sleep. That's part of the game is, is your sleep strategy. And then for XL, it's basically ride as long as you can without sleeping. Like that's the goal. And so I'm really afraid of that part of it because I get super grumpy when I'm tired (laughs) and I've never ridden through the night before. So I don't know what that feels like. And it sounds scary. But Jake Wells did XL last year, and in the way that they routed the course last year, the 200 people were crossing paths with the 350s. And so at some point, we kept riding by people. And I remember seeing Jake Wells pretty far back, much farther than I expected to see him. And it turns out that he got to one of the gas station checkpoints and he just like passed out on the curb for a few hours because he was so tired. And I've never talked to him personally about that story, but that's like my biggest fear is my body just saying like, I'm done with this and I'm going to take a nap right here. (laughs) So yeah, basically the sleep part. I mean, having gone to school in Kansas, I can tell you that there are probably worse places in the world to randomly pass out <laughs> on a street, but I, I I don't want to see that happen to you. Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> so for those of us who are gravel curious, mm-hmm. who are sitting here on the sidelines going, do I want to dip my toes into it? Why should we? I mean, you're not going to convince somebody who doesn't want to try it. But like for somebody who's curious about it, who might just need a little bit of push, what would be one of your pearls of wisdom to push us over the edge? I would find a friend who's in the same boat and I would go sign up for some local smaller event near you and say that you guys should just go have a fun adventure. If you're curious about it, if you have a cross bike, if you normally race cyclocross, that's the crowd I really try to push to get into the, these events because it's a lot of fun. And really, if you if you talk to a lot of people who do these gravel events, they'll tell you one of the main reasons why they do it is the people and the friends and the community that you meet. And that starts locally. It started locally for me. All the events that I went to in the beginning were within driving distance I think if you're curious about it, that's a great place to start. You know, it's much similar to cyclocross. You know, most people are picking events that are close to home and you should do the same thing with, with gravel. It's, there are enough events these days that grassroots vibe is still, it still exists. Um, and it's fun to just go to an event that's got like a tape for a banner and, you know, not really any timing systems. I've been to events where there's no, timing systems and you just put your ride on Strava and they don't even give out awards. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's all different kinds of events, but those are some of the most fun ones because yeah, sure. People are racing, but you can just go and have a fun story to share with your friends. How do you find out about an event? Cause we all know about the big ones, but is, is there, are they on bike Ridge or USA cycling? I mean, is there something aside from the Grodio that can help us find out more about 
what is available in our areas. Yeah, and that's the nice thing about it. The discipline growing over the past five or six years is there's a lot of different outlets now where you can look that stuff up. Um, my personal favorite one is gravelcyclist.com. Uh, my friend Jason O'Mahoney lives in Florida. And I met him the first year that I did Dirty Kanza, and he just had this little dinky website. But now it's where everybody goes to for all their gravel calendar stuff. And you can go through event promoters, send in, you know, their events. And it's this like really good compilated list of gravel events from, you know, the smallest ones to the biggest. And I think I've had a lot of cyclocross racers in the past year tell me, hey, man, I want to do this gravel thing. What should I do? And that's usually the first place I send them. And I say, find the smaller ones and pick those first. And then, you know, if your sponsors want you at Dirty Kanza or whatever, obviously those are the big ones to be at. But it's, it's good to just, you know, find a website that has everything listed and go from there. What are some of the mistakes that we should all try not to make? The ones that you may or may not have made early on in your gravel experience that could help us ease the way in to racing gravel. Man, I mean, the one thing I can think of that ruins a lot of people's rides is riding the tubes. (laughs) And that seems like such a small thing, but there have been many events where people's experiences are just completely ruined by getting too many flats. And I don't even say that because I have Orange Sealed as a sponsor. I say that just because the first couple events that I did, I got flats. And it's a lot easier if you can just get a puncture and keep riding. And it's really fun to play with tire pressures, especially if you enjoy cyclocross. Um, It's a cool thing to bring that knowledge and expertise over to gravel because you got a whole new set of tires and a whole new set of different pressures that you can work with based on the courses Cyclocross is very limited in, you know, tubulars, tubeless, probably up to 33s, and then then that's it. You know, it's all tire pressure from there for courses. But for gravel, you know, the conversations are like 200 different tire choices and a whole range of pressures. So it's fun to kind of take some of that nerdiness over to a different discipline. What are your uh, tires of choice? Well, it's funny because... I have never had a tire sponsor for gravel stuff specifically because I really like (laughs) having choices and I never wanted to be pigeonholed into something because I think uh, there are so many different courses out there that require a different range of options. For example, Belgian Waffle Ride, the, the year I got second, um, I rode like a 36 C tire choice which was way too wide and I lost a ton of time on the road because it's mostly a road race and then the following year I ended up racing the Hutchinson 28 sectors and I won so it's it comes down to decisions like that um, in an event like that specifically where there's so much road um, that can be a deciding factor But to answer your question, it depends on the course. And that's what I like about these events is I will make tire selections based on the terrain, how I know the course is going to be. And yeah, I have a whole lot of favorites (laughs) because of that. Is there anything that you have to buy in order to try this? I mean, obviously, we all have a bike. I don't have a cross bike. I've got a couple of disc brake road bikes. Can I try gravel with a good old-fashioned road bike? Mm, That's a tough one. It depends. Tire clearance, I think, is going to be your most, your limiting factor there. You could do Belgian Waffle Ride, that's for sure. If you can fit up to 25, 28 would be nice. I don't know if you could fit a 28, but yeah, you can get away with 28s in an event like that. But Dirty Kansas, for example, no way. Like Any of that stuff in the middle of the country, you're going to need a lot more clearance but I think, yeah, the the have to have will be a wider tire for sure um, for a lot most of the events. What's the excuse that I'm going to come up with? What's the biggest cop out that is completely BS that I should get out of my head well, right now? Do you now? ride tubeless right now on the road? Then no, I don't. I don't. I have two. I <laughs> okay. have tubeless ready, but I'm never. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The I didn't set up my tires tubeless is probably the biggest excuse I hear. <laughs> Okay, then we heard it from you. 
Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, this is really fun. I hope you find an event that you would like to do. You know, Bill's role on Grodio is the curious noob. That's his position because he's never done like a full gravel event before and, you know, asks stupid questions all the time because that's his job (laughs) on that show. Um, So it'd be fun if both of you found something, you know, I know you guys live close to each other. It's got to be something you can do. Yeah. Yeah, he's just down the road. I mean, I can yell really loud (laughs) out my window. He might hear me. Before we get to Chapter 2 and Adam Mills, we need to talk about the wide-angle podium and its supporter, Works. This is the second episode for No Training Wheels on the network, now with its own feed. We are getting some great feedback from our listeners and fans, and we want to hear from you. Whether you've been listening for a while or this is your first time, please leave us a review or drop us an email at notrainingwheelspod at gmail.com. And while you're here, check out some of the other great shows on the network, like the Grodio or Bike Shop CX, or even the new YouTube sensation, The Rough Draft, over on CX Harris's channel. It might be April, but the weather still isn't 100% committed to the idea of warm spring or summer conditions. Just ask any of the folks in Colorado or Chicago who've seen snow recently. Cold temps and bad weather shouldn't slow you down, and it definitely shouldn't slow down your bike cleaning and maintenance. And that's where Works is here to help. With its full line of power tools and especially its HydroShot battery-powered pressure washer, It doesn't need to be connected to an outdoor spigot with ice-cold water. You can hook it up to a bucket or a two-liter bottle with warm water, head outside, and get everything cleaned off while keeping yourself comfortable. And for listeners of the show, you can get 15% off the HydroShot and everything else on their site by using the promo code GEARUP at checkout. So go over to yourcleanbike.com, use the promo code GEARUP, all one word, for 15% off. And now on to Chapter 2 and Adam Mills. But please do stay tuned for after Adam's interview. He and I started talking about possible numbers and trends, so naturally I went to the source of all things data, Colin Reuter of BikeReg.com, to get the full picture of gravel, because it's 2020 and the internet does know everything. Amanda Nauman has already convinced me, a crit racer, that I should go out there and give gravel racing a shot. Before we get to the how part, because I don't have the first clue of how to race on gravel, and you've actually seen me ride on gravel, so you know how objectively terrible I am at handling my bike on anything that's not pavement. But before we get to that, why is it that we've seen this sharp rise in the popularity of gravel as, compa- as compared to cross, track, BMX, any other side of the sport? That's an interesting question. And I think it has more to do with people and gaining life experiences versus competition. So if you look at the gravel scene and the vibe, it more resembles concerts like a, like a Burning Man or Coachella. As the whole experience is kind of a celebration of fitness and of cycling. And the the bike racing part only applies to a handful of people. You go back and you look at the season opener grasshopper series where Jeff Kabush dropped everyone on this daredevil descent, and it was poorly reported on and reported on mostly as a bike race versus this celebration of bicycling and and yeah pete stedna got beat so he didn't really ruin gravel yet i think pete is probably the best gravel racer in the country right now in north america but this whole idea thing is a race and it's not really accurate so if you apply like a uci limit of finishing time plus like 20 percent even for cyclocross races that whole grasshopper series only had like 20 people that were within that realm of like 600 plus finishers so the gravel racing part only applies to a very small minority and everybody else is just finishing. 
Do you think that the popularity of gravel is genuine or do you think it's actually being overblown? I think it's genuine. I think this, I, I wonder, I don't have the, the data, but I wonder how many new people are they gaining every year? So USA Cycling has all these metrics of like the average uh, license holder stays in there for a year and a half before they quit racing. And if you can get them past that two year mark, they race for like five years, you get them past that five year mark and they race for basically the rest of their life. I'm interested in the wonder if the gravel racing is the same 2000 people going from event to event, or if there's this large pool of say a half a million people who are going to two events a year. Where are the participants coming from? Are they coming from road? Are they coming from cross? Are they coming from first timers who had no experience in another type of discipline? By and large, they're local. So if you have a thousand people at Belgian Waffle Ride and you have a thousand people at a uh, Chino Grinder in Arizona, knowing that they're all local, you don't have a big overlap. I think the people that did road racing, where there aren't many road races in USA Cycling anymore, they still want to have an epic day, so they're transferring over. I think uh, cross racers are realizing that bang for the buck it still takes a whole day and you still spend a fair amount of money racing cross for a day and maybe racing gravel for an entire day and doing something super epic is a better experience for their money. Um, so I think you're getting some cross racers leaving cyclocross uh, and going that direction. But by and large, I think a lot of it's just people that have never raced. They're never going to hold a license. They never have held a license and they just want to do something cool. And this is relatively close or it's such a great adventure. They want to go do it. What equipment do I actually need to go and race a gravel race as opposed to just being a participant? For racing a true gravel race. 80% or more of rocks on the road <clears throat> versus a mixed surface event like a Belgian waffle ride. For a gravel race like Dirty Kanza, you'd want a gravel bicycle, which are not the same as cyclocross bikes. Cyclocross bikes are limited by UCI rules and regulations. Gravel bikes are basically, here's the, the problem is the, is the course and the solution is Whatever you want to bring to bear on that problem is totally fine. 40C tires are definitely the way to go um, or wider. Oh, and, and those tires are in the tires for the bike. Make sure they're the right pressure. Uh, Envied has a great like pressure guide for their wheels. And I think for, for tires, you want like a, I always like the fine file tread with a little bit of sidewall blocks in the side. Something like the IRC Bokens, the 40Cs are kind of my go-to. You've always loved those IRCs. I have. I have. And I also like the fact that I can ride behind someone riding the Boken tires and not just have sand and dirt sprayed in my face from the tread, from this from the file tread. So you get big blocks in the rolling services, you just tend to grab dirt and throw it up in the air, which also means higher rolling. Uh, you want plenty of clearance um, and you want a bike with geometry or gravel. So you need like a longer, a longer wheelbase, maybe more slack head tube. Almost slower geometry is better because uh, it feels more stable. What are the things aside from the bike that you need to think about? The equipment that you would bring with you to a gravel event or a gravel race that you wouldn't necessarily bring to with you to even the longest of road races? With with source endurance, we thought a lot about that and. Uh, we're not really uh, beholden to anyone as far as equipment sponsors go. We work with uh, this this online purchasing place called Pure Gravel. And, and the idea is that whatever equipment is good and reliable is going to be the right one. So you can have your super light water bottle cages that cost $100. Those are great. But how do they handle when you get on like a wash? So from a, from a water bottle standpoint, like, I, I like the uh, Arundel Bando cages. Never lost a bottle out of them, ever. I've done some really stupid stuff on bikes with bottles, with Arundel's cages. Stuff like that. Just stuff that's reliable. Don't, don't go for trick parts. 
don't go for the super duper light saddle, go for the saddle that you can bounce on. You know, we use, I, I like cell Talia saddles. I like the big cutout, they're reliable. Don't get the super light seat post, get the one that doesn't ever slip because all those things can slow you. From a fundamentals perspective, so fundamentals of bike driving, what are the skills or vision or what, whatever you want to call it that you need to develop to transition from racing on the road to racing gravel? The biggest thing is you have to get used to the fact that the surface you're riding on is not solid. Lateral sliding here and there, centimeter, an inch, two or three inches, that tends to scare people that do road riding. But if your fundamentals of turning are right on anyway, like low center of gravity, outside foot down, know, push on the inside shoulder, that kind of stuff. If those fundamentals are all there, you're going to be, but then practice. Anyone can pedal uphill. That's just downhill is the scary part. Because now you're going 30, 40 miles an hour down a dirt road that's not necessarily going to react that well if you need to break. Because I can't do anything half speed. And because I am obsessed with the idea of competing, getting into a gravel race. How do the tactics and strategies of gravel differ from road or cross? They're all the same. They're all based on the draft. Primary fundamental of all racing strategy and tactics is, is predicated on the draft effect. The draft effect is there in cyclocross. It's minimized. The draft effect is there in cross rate or gravel racing as well. You just have to understand how to utilize it and leverage it to your advantage. And racing gravel is something you realize a lot of people that are really strong, that come from road events, really are really poor at understanding how the fundamentals of drafting and strategy work. Is teamwork a thing in gravel? Or are the guys and girls who are wearing your same jersey just other people that you need to beat? Uh, Right now, in racing, it does not work because there is not a team that understands how to leverage it properly and they can all be on the same page. What do they need to do in order to become that team? I think they need to band together with people that know what they're doing. And that's harder. It's harder, it's easier said than done. Even your strongest riders don't necessarily understand how to manage that. You know, anytime you get more than just a flat, easy rolling surface, it makes it more technically difficult to manage drafting and strategy. I wonder if you can even have a team of eight that could that could be cohesive. It may only be two or three people is the most that you have. But right now, it more resembles a NASCAR event where you have a team owner like Wahoo and their Wahooligans who have all these sponsored riders. And when Colin Strickland wins a race, then that's a bonus for Wahoo. Or when uh, Keith Stetno wins a race, that's still great for Wahoo. They don't race together, even though they have the same. And, and you can argue that's a good thing because it keeps the racing more wide open. Or you can argue like we need teams in gravel racing to make sure that the sponsors get the most for their most leveraged exposure for what they do how because you said practice makes perfect basically how do i get that practice in an environment where i'm learning from experts where i'm learning from people who know what they're doing as opposed to me just going out and hitting the cno canal trail or the local gravel roads i mean just go ride go ride dirt and surfaces that aren't that aren't smooth dirt, gravel, whatever, figure out what your bike can do. People are riding around with these amazing braking systems and they're riding them the same as they would ride cantilever brakes. Gradual, nonchalant braking process. In reality, those disc brakes now, they can, they can take you from 40 miles an hour to zero pretty darn fast. So it gives you this enormous ability to make errors and correct. Are there any kind of camps or clinics that are offered? to teach you there are and we do the belgian waffle ride survival camp uh in january so it's already been gone i would say in 2020 you're not going to find a whole lot of that stuff going on 
but there usually are a few camp. We are going to do a couple more, maybe not in 2020. What's What happens in the BWR survival camp that you guys run? We do a bunch of stuff. It's a it's a true like experience camp and pre-ride camp. So we pre-ride almost the entire course over three days. So you you know what the course looks like as opposed to on race day when it's just, oh, first I started pedaling, it was really early, and then I was on dirt, and then he went uphill forever, and then he went into a headwind forever, and then I was done. That's kind of everyone's initial impression of it. But when you ride the course over three days and you remember like, oh, I remember this switchback and that it's really gnarly. But if I go super wide, I can get onto the embankment. Remember that kind of stuff. Uh, and you remember like, oh, from this point, it's about an hour to the finish line. Uh, we teach how to manage some of the more tricky gravel sections. And in some points, you just got to go slow because going slow will help you get there faster at the end. Well, Adam Mills, head coach, Source Endurance, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. Happy to be here. To get a true sense of the impact of gravel on the sport, I went to my source for all things data. Colin Reuter, lead developer for BikeRedge.com, and posed a series of demographics questions. He went and crunched the numbers for events that use BikeRedge, so yes to Mid-South, but no to Dirty Kansas. Of the 327 gravel events nationwide, over 75% of them are still under 250 registrants. And only 11, meaning 3.4%, have over 500 entrants, making gravel very much still a grassroots movement. Interestingly, the ages skew older than road by about 10 years, with a median age bracket of 45 to 55 years old. Gravel does draw more heavily on female riders at about 20% than road at 17, but trails far behind track at 29%. But as always, Mills was fairly close to being right when it comes to travel. The average travel distance, zip code to zip code for gravel, was 125 miles, just slightly less than road at 136. Surprisingly, cross is at 99 miles. So take from that what you might, as numbers do not provide conclusions, but rather data points for us all to argue about conclusions. Again, thanks to Results Boy for running the numbers for us. Thanks for joining us on this episode of No Trading Wheels. We are a proud member of the Wyniggle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling content. For more information and links to the other incredible shows on the network, go to WideAnglePodium.com. This show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. For more content, follow us on Twitter at NTWheelsPod or on Instagram at NoTrainingWheelsPod. And your home for the best in American road racing is NoTrainingWheelsPod.com. Until next time, see you out on MacArthur Boulevard.